red arms. Give it your all. We'll, we'll drink the wine till the cup is dry and kiss the girl so they'll not cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance with Jack on the Shadows. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin, and today we're jumping into Chapter 10, The Stone Stands. So, the prior chapter, Chapter 9, ended with basically Landfear and Rand having a chit-chat, and Rand basically getting cut off from the one power by Landfear, and, you know... Then a gray man sneaks in the back door or in the door behind Landfear and Rand kind of like dives towards her to protect her, knocks her out of the way. She releases the one power and he basically just chops Suey's the gray man that he had a hard time keeping his eyes on. And then he's like, why did you try to assassinate me when I'm literally right in your hand? She's like, I don't use the gray man. And, you know, the soulless, as she calls him. And then he's like, well, what did you do to the guards? And then she's like, don't go out there. And so he opens the door and here we are. So the first thing he notices at the beginning of chapter 10 is that there are dead Aielmen at his feet, tangled with the bodies of three very ordinary men in very ordinary coats and breeches. You know, ordinary men, ordinary looking men, I should say, except the six Aiel, the entire guard had been slain. Some, obviously, before they knew what was happening, and each of those ordinary men had at least two Aiel spears through them. So, some of them, you know, <laughs> they went down fighting. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it's a more of a loss to the Aiel men than, obviously, the, the Grey Men of Solus. Those Grey Men are basically dead as it is, but for them to kill an Aiel man without him noticing is a pretty impressive feat, considering the Aiel are, like, the most alert of all alerts alerts. But aside from that, when he pulled the door open, there was a roar of battle just hitting him with all the howling and shouting and you know, weapons smashing into each other. And the vendors in the anteroom were fighting for their lives against bulky, black-mailed shapes, head and shoulders taller than they. Shapes like huge men, but with heads and faces distorted by horns or feathers. By muzzle or beak where mouth and nose should be. Trollocs. They strode on paws or hooves as often as on booted feet, cutting down men with oddly spiked axes and hooked spears and scythe-like swords that curved the wrong way. And with them, a murdral, like a sleek moving man with maggot-white skin and black armor, like death-made bloodless flesh. There's your dedicated description of Trollocs and murdral. <laughs> Um, we'll get a little bit more, at least for the, uh, the fade coming up. But then an, an alarm sounds, alarm gong specifically, um, kind of weird to have a police siren show up all of a sudden in the stone, <laughs> but a, a gong sounds in the stone and then just stops like somebody just killed the person. And then another one picks it up and another and tolls are going off crazy, but the defenders fought and they outnumbered the Trollocs, but... There are more defenders down than there are Trollocs, so, you know, hey. But once Rand's eyes fall on a Murdral, he the Murdral tore off half the tyrant captain's face with one bare hand while the other drove a dead black blade through a defender's throat, sliding defender's spears thrust like a snake. And then defenders basically thought they were just traveler tales used to frighten children because, you know, oh, we're in the South where we never have to face any of this stuff. Ha 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 ha. It's not real. And it's like, maybe you guys should have a training camp in the borderlands. That might change your tune. Um, But, you know, their nerves are just basically on the edge of just breaking and their morale just snapping in half. Um, one man lost his helmet, threw down his spear, and tried to flee, but then he had his head split like a melon by a Trolloc's massive axe. That's what you get for running putting your back to somebody who can kill you. Uh, another man looked at the Murdral and fled screaming, but the Murdral darted, trying to intercept. But the humans are about to be running, and then Rand shouts, Fade! Try me, Fade! But the Murdral stops as if it hadn't moved, and it's pale, eyeless face turning to him, and fear ripples through Rand at the stair, you know, sliding over the bubble of cold calm that encased him when he had held Sidene. In the Borderlands, they said, the look of the eyeless is fear. 
That's a pretty standard one. You've heard it already before. I believe it was in book one. It was the first time you heard that. Um, but once he had believed, Fades rode shadows like horses and disappeared when they turned sideways. These old beliefs were not so very far wrong. So there are some things that they do that are kind of supernaturalist, but aside from that, they're basically just boneless men, practically. <laughs> they're not literally, but for all intents and purposes. The Merdral heads towards him, and Rand leaps up. Uh, the dead guy's in front of him and jumps to meet him. His boots skidded on bloody black marble as he landed. And he shouts, Rally to the stone! As he leaps up, The stone stands! And these are the battle cries he had heard the night the stone had not stood. <laughs> it's like, well, that's, that's quite helpful, isn't it? Say the same thing that didn't work the first time. But he heard a vexed shout of, Fool! from the, the room he had just left, but... He had no time for Lanfear or what she might do. That skid very nearly cost him his life, with his red-gold blade barely turning the Merdral's black one as he fought for balance. Rally to the stone, the stone sands. But he had to keep the defenders together, or face the Merdral and 20 chalks by himself. I mean, to be fair, burn them all to ashes, and pretty easy, but whatever. Uh, but if there's other people in the room with him, he'd kill them too, so he can't do that. The stone stands, but then he hears somebody else go, The stone stands! And somebody else is like, The stone stands! And it's just like, Well, then act like it! <laughs> um, sorry, there's a bit more humor in this than I was expecting, mostly because I'm a little loopy. It's late at night. Um, <laughs> but the fade moves as fluidly as a serpent, the snake-like illusion heightened by the overlapping plates of black armor down its chest. Yet not even a back lance ever struck so quickly. So it attacks lightning speed, um, and it has kind of this serpentine-type illusion about itself. I'm surprised they say snake-like instead of serpentine, but yeah, it is what it is. It's the word he chose to use. But then Rand's basically just trying to keep the Thakandar blade from his own, you know, obviously pretty much bare flesh because he's not wearing any armor of any type. But the black metal could make wounds that festered, almost as hard to heal as the one that ached in his side now. But each time Darksteel forged in the Thakandar below the slopes of Sheogul met red gold power wrought blade, light flashed like sh a sheet lightning in the room, a sharp bluish white that hurt the eyes. And then the Merdral does something that I usually consider really, really stupid, and I also consider that in this thing, where he rasps at him in a voice like crumbling of dead leaves. You'll die this time, and I'll give your flesh to the Trollocs and take your women for my own. <laughs> the Merdral, the, 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 the highest form of hedonist possible. <laughs> and they have some pretty messed up systems, I might add. So... Rand fought as coldly as he ever had, and desperately, and the Fade knew how to use the sword. But then there was an instant where he could just hit land a blow squarely at the sword itself, not merely divert it, and with a hiss of ice falling on molten metal, the red gold blade sheared through the black, and his next blow took the eyeless head from his shoulders, and the shock of hacking through bone, there's your bone answer, shivered up his arm. So you get inky blood fountain from the stump of its neck, so it's, it's like a black oozy ink rather than your typical just squirting blood. But it doesn't fall. It thrashes blindly with his broken sword, the headless figure stumbling about, striking randomly at the air. But then we also get this other piece of information that we are also familiar from the first book, but in case you've forgotten. As the Fade's head fall, uh, fell to roll across the floor, the remaining Trollocs fell too, shrieking, kicking, tearing at their heads with coarse-haired hands. It was a weakness of Merdral and Trollocs. Even Merdral did not trust Trollocs, so they often linked with them in, in some way. Rand did not understand. It apparently ensured the Trollocs' loyalty, but those linked to a Merdral did not survive its death long, which is kind of funny that you would make something so powerful, yet have such a massive weakness. <laughs> like, it's like, oh yeah, you, you can kill the Trolloc, it ain't gonna bother the Merdral, but if you kill the Merdral, it's gonna just kill every single one of the Trollocs, because that makes sense. But the defenders, fewer than two dozen, so like 24, less than 24, didn't wait. In twos and threes, they stabbed each Trolloc repeatedly with their spears until it stopped moving, but some of them had the Merdral down, but it flailed wildly no matter how many they stabbed, or how many times they stabbed, but the Trollocs fell silent and a couple of the human wounded were moaning and weeping. And there are just a lot more men on the floor than there were Shadowspawn. But 
The black marble on the floor was covered in blood, almost invisible against the dark stone. But Rand tells the defenders not to worry about the merge all. It's, it's dead already. The fades just don't want to admit that they're dead. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty strong tactic if you think about it. And Lan had told him that it was a long time ago. Again, book one. Um, and he had a proof of it before. He's like, check on the injured people. That's the ones that are going to matter. So, as they look at this headless thrashing shape, they shivered and moved back, muttering about lurks, which is another term for fades or merdral, the eyeless, whatever you want to call them. Lurks are just another name. Um, and that's what they call them in tear, but it was tales meant for children, typically. Like, if you don't behave and go to bed when you're supposed to, or you don't listen to your parents, the, fate, the, the lurks will come get you. But some of the men there hunted down uh, the humans that were still alive, trying to pull them out and get those who couldn't stand and help them to their feet. And there's too many where they just lay. But hasty bandages ripped from a man's own bloody shirt was the only the comfort that could really be offered. And they did not look so pretty as they had, these tyrants. They didn't have their gleaming breast and back plates. Um, they had dents and scuffs, blood-soaked sashes marred once fine black and gold coat and breeches. Um, they were missing some of their helmets. Some of them had to lean on their spears like it was the only thing to keep them on his feet. I mean, if you think about it, if you got surprise attacked by some, uh, gray men, and then not to mention a horde of Trollocs and a Murdral, you probably have your adrenaline spiking super hard if it's the first time you've ever encountered them. You've never known them to be cre creatures of reality, only creatures of nightmare and stories and fairy tales and stuff. So it makes kind of sense if you think about it, where, you know, a soldier, even a hardened soldier, coming across such a, an absolute butchering of them. And, I mean, keep in mind, less than two dozen, so 24, less than 24 men are alive. And that's less than half of what they had. So they had probably close to 100 or 70, 70 or 100 probably in that range of men, and only two dozen survived. That's that's pretty bad odds <laughs> against them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, basically, uh, it's, it's understandable that their adrenaline might kick on and then it kick off. And as soon as it kicks off, that's like what's keeping you on your feet. But they're breathing really heavily with wild expressions on their face and just terror and blind numbness that affects men and metal. It's like, well, look, you guys haven't fought anybody in a long time, clearly. But they stare at Rand, not certain, you know, fleeting, fearful stares. If he didn't, you know, might have called these creatures out of the blight himself. And he tells them to, like, wipe the spear points because a fade's blood will etch steel like acid if it's left on long enough. They moved a little slowly to obey using what was available and then the coat sleeves of their own dead. Um, but then they hear fighting down the corridors in the distance. And there's clashes of metal and distant shouts. They had obeyed him twice, but it's like, well, let's see if you'll do more. So he turns his back on them and he starts heading across the anteroom. He's like, follow me. He raises his fire wrought blade to remind him of who he was, hoping the reminder didn't put a spear in his back, but he has to take the risk. He's like, the stone stands for the stone. And it's like, it, if there was ulterior motive, now is the time anybody could have just, you know, piked him through the back or something. But it's also kind of a silly thing where, like, he starts heading down the hall. There's just nothing. All of a sudden, you hear boot follows. And then it's like, for the stone, for the stone, the Lord Dragon. And then just everyone starts chanting it out. And he goes to a trot and he he takes his bloodied army of 23, so there's your number, 23 deeper into the stone. But he doesn't know where Lanfear is and what she had to do with this, but he didn't really think about it because he didn't have time to. He sees dead men all over the halls of the stone, you know, pulls of their own blood. Here are two or three defenders, servants, Aiel, even women, linen gown nobles and wool-clad servants alike, struck down as they had fled because Trollocs didn't care about who they killed. They just took pleasure in it. Murdra or worse. You know, halfmen glorified in pain and death. But a little bit deeper, the Stone of Tear boils and 
knots of Trollocs rampage through the halls, sometimes with a merge all leading, sometimes alone, battling Aiel or defenders, cutting down the unarmed, hunting more to kill. But Rand takes his little group and, you know, taking any shadow spawn they find, and sword slicing coarse flesh and black mail with equal ease. Only the Aiel face to fate without flinching. The Aiel and Rand. He passed up Trollocs to reach fate. Sometimes the Merdral took a dozen or two down with them. Uh, Trollocs, that is. Um, sometimes there wasn't any. Some of his defenders fell and didn't rise, but Aiel joined them, practically doubling their number. Um, groups of men broke off in furious battles that drifted at one way or the other. Shouts and everything like a forge gone mad. Um, some men fell in behind Rand, broke away, were replaced, till none of the ones he had originally started with were there. Sometimes he was by himself, ran down a hallway, empty save for himself and the dead, sometimes having just the sounds of distant combat. But once he had two defenders, um, basically in this long chamber with many doorways, and he saw Lan and Moraine, completely surrounded by Trollocs, and the Aes Sedai just stood like some storied queen of battles, and bestial state shapes bursting into flame around her just to be replaced by more you know, targeting her dashing through the door that six or eight at a time and lands basically cutting down those who escape Moraine's fire and he had blood on both sides of the faces but he flowed with all the forms as coolly as if practicing before a mirror then a wolf snouted Trolloc thrust a tyrant spear towards Moraine's back and land whirled as though he had eyes in the back of his head which I mean the number one blade master of the world makes sense Taking off the Trolloc's leg at the knee, and the Trolloc yell, or yelled as he fell, and um, managed to thrust the, steer, the spear point at Lan as another clubbed the warder awkwardly with the flat of his axe, buckling his knees. Bran couldn't do anything because at the same time, five Trollocs fall upon him and his two companions, all snouts and boar tusks and ram's horns, pushing the humans out of the colonnade by sheer weight of their rush. But five Trollocs could have been able should have been able to kill three men without much difficulty, except that one of the men was Rand, <laughs> the sword that treated their mail like cloth. I mean, yeah, that helps. One of the defenders died, and the other vanished, chasing after a wounded Trolloc, the lone survivor of the five. I mean, it's a one v one is in favor of the Trollocs, so chasing him is kind of silly. <laughs> Even if he's wounded, it's like ah, this could end horribly either way. But I mean, he's got a duty to do it, so why not? Then Rand hurried back to the colonnade, but there was a smell of burned meat from the chamber with the great burned bodies on its floor, but Land and Moraine weren't there. That was the way that the stone was being contested for, or at least Rand's life. Battles springing up and drifting away from where they began or died when one side fell. Not only did men fight Trollocs and Murdral, men fought men. There were some dark friends siding with the Shadowspawn, roughly just fellows who looked like former soldiers and tavern brawlers. They seemed as fearful of the Trollocs as the Tyrants did, but they killed just as indiscriminately as the Trollocs did, and wherever they could find people. But twice, Rand actually saw Trollocs battling Trollocs, and he could assume that the Merdral had lost control of them and their bloodlust had taken over, because, you know, hey, if they want to kill each other, by all means, go for it. But then he was alone again and tried around a corner right into three Trollocs. Both, or well, I would say both, all three, uh, twice as wide as he and nearly half again as tall one of them with an eagle's hooked beak thrusting out of an otherwise human face. So twice as wide and nearly half again as tall. So he's close to seven foot, I want to say. And I think that puts them, I mean, that, put, that would put him probably like 10, 11 foot. Like that, there's some tall dudes, which is weird because the average height is usually eight or nine feet, I think, for uh, Trollocs. But I think eight feet's more average. But apparently, there's a couple that are just as tall. Um, or maybe that I mean, you could also perceive as the half again being as as twice as wide. Um, but they're they're big, thick guys or Trollocs. I guess they're not necessarily guys. Um, and they're just, they're massive comparative to him, but they were hacking the, uh, body of a tyrant noblewoman while they were watched eagerly licking their snouts, but because Trollocs literally eat well anything as long as it was meat. Um, 
there's an even chance whether he made more surprises than they were, but he was the first to recover. The one with the eagle's beak went down, male and belly alike opened across, and the sword form called Lizard in the Thornbush. Now, I imagine this move as a kind of a stabbing attack, probably a little bit lower to the ground, like as if you were in a bush and you chucked out your sword. Um, but it should have done the other two, but the first fallen Trolloc thrashing half kicked his foot out from underneath him and he staggered, his blade only scoring a slice along the target's mail, right up to the path of the second Trolloc as it fell. The wolf's muzzle snapping at nothing. It crushed him to the stone tiles beneath its bulk, trapping his sword arm and the sword. But the one still standing raised its spike axe, coming as close to a smile as a boar snout and tusk would allow, but Rand struggled to move and to breathe. But then a scythe-curved sword split the boar snout at the neck, and it pulls its blade free, a fourth Trolloc bared goat teeth at him and snarl, ears twitching beside its horns, then it darted away, with sharp hooves clicking on the floor tiles. And Rand's just, like, losing his mind, like, what? A Trolloc saved me? A Trolloc? And he finally gets out underneath the uh, dead weight of the Trolloc on top of him, and he's just covered in Trolloc blood, thick and dark. But down the hallway... There was, uh, from where the goat horn Trolloc had fled, blue-white flashed as two Merdral moved into view, fighting each other in an almost boneless blur of continuous motion. One forced the other into a crossing corridor, and the flashing light faded from sight, and he's like, I'm losing my mind. I'm absolutely insane. This is just a crazy dream. But then he hears his voice saying, you risk everything, rushing about wildly with that, that sword. And he turns to face Lanfear. She had put on her appearance of a girl again, no older than he, perhaps even younger. And she lifted her white skirts to step over the tyrant lady's torn body. <laughs> it might as well have been a log to her. Um, and she's like, you build a hut of twigs when you could have marble palaces for the snap of your fingers. You could have had their lives and such souls as Trollocs possess with little effort. Instead, they nearly killed you. You need to learn, so join with me. And he's like, is that you? Like, that Trolloc saving me? Those Merdral? Is that it? And she, you know, considers him before giving a slight regretful shake of the head. And it's like, well, if I take credit, you'll expect it again, and that could be deadly. None of the others is really certain where I stand, and I like it that way. You can expect no open aid from me. Expect your aid? You want me to turn against the light and join the shadow? You can't make me forget what you are, the, you are basically, with your soft words. But he channels and slams her against the wall, hanging hard enough to make her grunt. And he holds her there, spread-eagled over a woven uh, hunting scene, feet off the floor, snowy gown spread out and flattened. He had blocked a Gwen in a lane, but he had to remember. But then he flies across the hallway to crash against the wall opposite of her, and is just pressed there like an insect by something and barely allowed him to breathe. But Lanfear didn't seem to have any trouble breathing. It's like, whatever can you do, Lutheran? I can do, and better. Now I'm just thinking about this because she's like pinned to the wall, She's channeling without using her hands. And this is something that people who are really, really well-learned with the one power can do moderately easily. But it's something that, for whatever reason, other people who are less inclined typically... Uh, need to still use their hand or something like Moraine still has her like little staff scepter thing that she's got as kind of a, a focus point. She's like, you use half the, f the smallest fraction of what you are capable of and walk away from what would allow you to crush all who come against you. Where's Kalendor, Luce Theron? Is it in your bedchamber like some useless ornament? Do you think yours is the only hand that can wield it? You've drawn it free now, so if Samael is here, he'll take it and he'll use it against you. But even Mogedian would take it to deny you its use, and she could gain much by trading it to any male chosen. He struggles whatever's holding him, but nothing moved but his head and flinging side to side. And Kalandor in the hands of male forsaken, that almost drove him half mad with fear and frustration. He channeled, tried to pry at what held him, but there might as well have been nothing to pry. And then abruptly he was gone, and he lurched away from the wall, still fighting, before he realized he was free and from nothing he had done. But he looked at Lanfear, and she's just hanging there, and just like, eh, whatever. She's trying to lull him to gull him into softening towards her, and he hesitated over flows, and if you tied him off here, you know, whatever. But if a passing trolley did not kill her, thinking she was one of the stone's folk, but 
that shouldn't have bothered him, not the death of a forsaken, but the thought of leaving a woman or anyone helpless for Trollocs repelled him. So he has a little bit of his naive country bumpkin morality still there. Like he's he's very much like, I couldn't even do that to a person as evil as you, let alone a woman. Because he has very traditional mentality of women, where women are extremely valuable in a society where they're the reproducers of humankind. Like men can go to battle and die and women will just pop out some more. Like that's the traditional uh, medieval slash fantastical mentality of humankind because that's literally how it works. So uh, men aren't as valuable in terms of the longevity of mankind because one man can technically get, you know, several women pregnant and have multiple children that way where one woman can only have one man's baby at a time. Like, so from from a logistical standpoint of society surviving, women have a higher value point. So that's that's kind of the traditional sense of it from any of these cultures where they value women at a higher level than typically men are because men are the ones who are getting literally thrown to the meat grinder of war. So he probably grew up with that in the village, let alone the village council or the village council versus the, uh, uh, the women's, uh, circle. The women's circles probably thinks very highly of themselves. And as such, the village is expected to think highly of them as well. So he, He's going to think very highly of women, even if he doesn't like them catching him, doing something bad and spanking him and all that kind of stuff, you know, what, what you'd typically expect. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of a small tangent, but it kind of shows his naivete as a, a young man thrust into a very crazy position, fighting his essentially duty with also the same thing of you know, he needs to fight evil. This woman here is evil, but he doesn't want to leave her to a Trolloc. And even the idea of a Trolloc killing an evil person is repulsive to him. So um, no matter how you look at it, it's just how he views life and stuff. So, um, But he's like, well, if I could find Moraine to block her. But then Lanfear takes the decision from him again. And he feels severed flows jolt at him. And she drops lightly to the floor and he's, you know, staring at her. And he's like, what? You can't do that. And she's like, oh, I do not have to see a flow to unravel it if I know where it is and what it is and where. You see, you have much to learn. I like you like this. You're always too stiff-necked and sure of yourself for comfort. It was always better when you were a bit uncertain of your footing. Are you forgetting Calendor then? And now he's just like, well, she's she's free again. And that probably wasn't the best feeling of him snapping back into him. And he's like, well, I'm he turns and runs for Kalendor, even though the Forsaken is there. And she just laughs at him as he leaves. But then he doesn't stop to fight Trollocs or Merdral. And he doesn't slow his wild climb through the stone unless he got in his way. But... His sword, carved of fire, sliced away through for him, and he saw Perrin and Fael, um, he with the axe in hand, and her guarding his back with her knives. The Trolloc seemed as reluctant to face Perrin's yellow-eyed stares as axe blade, which, I mean, to be fair, the dude's huge. The dude's almost as tall. I think he's like six foot seven or six foot eight. Like, he's a big guy, and he's built like a wall, and he has the stamina to basically back it up. So every time he, quote-unquote, hammers through their armor with an axe, they're not eager to go into that grinder. So he sees that going on, but he's like, well, if I, I, can't, I can't stop to think about them because if one of the Forsaken takes Kalendor, none of them are going to live to see the sunrise. So he runs out of his breath as he's getting to the Colin anteroom and leaps over the dead still lying there, the defenders and Trollocs alike. In his haste to reach Calendar, he flings open the doors, and the sword that is not a sword is still sitting on its gilded and gem-set stand, shining with light of the setting sun, waiting for him. Truly meaning to be used. It just 
he had used it only once like that. So now he knows what awaits him. And when he took it up again, he used it to draw on the true source far beyond what any human could hold unaided. And this is where it gets a little cool. <laughs> so this is where you, uh, you basically crank on the uh, Doom Eternal soundtrack and just hear that slapping guitar as you're just about to go ham on people. So he, he lets go of the red gold blade. And when it vanishes, he almost brought it back. But his feet's dragging as he uh, skirts around the corpse of the gray man, puts his hands slowly on Calendor's hilt. And it's cold, like a crystal long in the dark. But it doesn't feel smooth that it would slip in his hand. But something makes him look up, and there's a fade in the doorway, hesitating with its pale eye, eyeless gaze on Kalendor. And Rand just pulls at Sidene through Kalendor, and the sword that is not a sword blazed in his hands as it held noonday. The power filled him, hammering down like solid thunder. The taint rushed through him in the flood of blackness. Molten rock pulsed along his veins, and the cold inside him could have frozen the sun. He had to use it or burst like rotten melling. Now, I'd like to point out that I think that what happened is the fade, un unlikely that it was just sitting there waiting. It probably saw him dashing back someplace and followed him, is my guess. Which is a very poor choice, considering the circumstances. But the Murdral turns around to flee, but then his black clothes and armor crumple to the floor, leaving oily motes floating in the air. And Rand's not even sure what he did until afterwards, and he couldn't say what he had done if his life depended on it. But nothing could threaten his life while he held Kalendor. The power throbbed in him like a heartbeat of the world, and I'm pretty sure Landfear's not going to pop up in front of him now that he's got this, because even if she knows how to cut flows, they're going to be some crazy flows. And that's if she yeah, succeeded in getting them cut. So with the calendar's hands, he's just feels like he's a hammer to crack mountains. Channels thread whisk the Murdral's drifting remains out of the anteroom, and it's clothes and armor, and incinerates everything. And he decides to go out and hunt for those who hunted against him. And some of them came as far as the anteroom. Another fade in a huddle of cowering Trollocs stood before Columns, the far side, staring at ash that sifted out of the air, the last fragments of the Murdral at its garb. At the sight of Rand, Rand with Kalendor flaring in his hand, the Trollocs howled like beasts, and obviously the Murdral just stood paralyzed with shock. But Rand didn't give him a chance. I was like, what do you expect? You're, you're facing somebody who could use the one power. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you think is going to happen out of this? But the Murdral's like, what? But Rand doesn't ha give him a chance to do anything, so he maintains his deliberate pace towards them. He just channels, and flames just blast into them, the bare black marble beneath the shadow spawn, so hot that he flung up a hand against it. By the time he reached them, the flames are gone, and there's nothing there but dull circles in the marble. Like, he just evaporated them with fire. Um, but then he heads back down to the stone, and every Trolloc and Mergel he saw died wreathed in fire, and he burned them, fighting Aiel or Tyrants, killing servants, trying to defend themselves with spears or swords snatched from the dead. And he just burned them as they ran, whether they stalked victims or fled further down the hall. And he began to move faster and faster, and then he's trotting, running, heading past wounded, and some are lying unattended past the dead, because he can't move fast enough, because basically if he stops to help the, the wounded and those who he potentially could heal, if he knew anything about healing, um, it would just create more dead, more wounded, etc. So he's like, I need to go, other people can take care of this, I need to finish these guys off. So, while he killed Trollocs in handfuls, others still slew, if only to escape. But he stops, surrounded by the dead, in a wide hallway. And he's thinking, I gotta do something. Something more. And he feels the power along his bones, pure essence of fire. And he's like, I gotta, I really gotta do something else. Something a bit more. And he feels like the, his marrow is frozen by the power. And he thinks, something to kill them all. All of them at once. And the taint on sighting rolls over him, a mountain of rotting filth threatening to bury his soul. He raises Kalendor as he drew on the source, drewing on it until he basically thought he was going to scream screams of frozen flame. He had to kill them all. So just beneath the ceiling, right above his head, air slowly began to revolve, spinning faster, milling in streaks of red and black and silver. It roils and collapses inward, boiling harder, 
whining as it whirled and grew smaller still. And he has sweat drip down his face as he's looking up, and he doesn't know what this is. Only that the racing flows he could not begin to count connected him to the mass. And it had mass, a weight growing greater while the thing fell inward on itself. Calendor flared brighter and brighter and so brilliant he couldn't even look at it and closed his eyes. But the light seemed to burn through his eyelids. The power raced through him, a raging torrent. Now, the first thing that popped in my head was, oh, he's going to pull another freaking, <laughs> another bloody dragon mount. <laughs> like, it's, it's going to be a whole another day all over again. Um, but he has to let go because it's just spinning like a raging torrent. He's like, I have to let it go. I have to. And it's like looking at all the thunderstorms in the world, compressing it to the size of a Trolloc's head. And he had to, had to. And he's like, now. And the thought just is like cackling laughter on the rim of his awareness. And he severed the flows rushing out of him, leaving the thing still whirling. I'm mentioning it, it pictured it in my head like a spinning top of just like a storm. And it's just moving at lightning speed. And then the lightnings start showing up, flashing out among the ceiling left and right in silver streams. A all stepped out of a side corridor before it could even take a second step. Half a dozen flaring streaks just blasted it apart. Other streams flowed on, fanning down every branching corridor. I'm just imagining it like just pulsing and heading through, like just bypassing walls and just going through every corridor and like a big, like going everywhere in like a big circumference type expansion until it covers the entirety of the stone. And I mean, there's enough power there. It could probably do it over the entire country. Um, but that's, that's how I'm imagining it. And, it's replaced by more and more erupting every second. And Rand doesn't know what he made it or how it worked or anything. He just stood there quivering with the power and he needs to use it, even if it kills him. But he could feel Trollocs and Mergerall dying and feel the lightning strike and kill. And he could kill them everywhere, anywhere in the world. He knows it. With Kalendor, he could do anything. Well, not necessarily true, but tuck that away for later. Um, he knew trying would kill him just as surely, but he could do it. But the lightnings fade and died with the last shadow spawn, and the spinning mass imploded with a loud clap of inrushing air, but Kalandor still shone like the sun, and he shook with the power. But then more rain shows up. Now, I need to, I probably need to back up a little bit and preface this. This becomes a very emotional part of this chapter, and it's actually one of the more powerful parts of, in my opinion, a humble opinion, the entire book. And... It kind of chokes me up inside a little bit every time I read it. So I'm going to try not to do that since I've been trying to keep it kind of lighthearted this whole time. But this is going to make it really hard to do because I know what's coming. And if you've read the story before, you know what's coming. And if you don't know, well, you're about to find out. So Moraine shows up about a dozen paces away staring at him. And her dress is all neat and everything. But Whispers of Air were disarrayed, and she looked tired, obviously, because she's been doing some work. Um, but she also looked shocked, and she's like, what have you done? How did you do it? I would not have believed possible. But Land shows up, half-trotting up the hall, sword in hand, face bloodied and coat torn. Never takes his eyes, her eyes off of Rand. Moraine flungs out a hand, halting the warder, short of her, well, you know, short of Rand, as if he's too dangerous for even Land to approach. She's like, are you well, Rand? And this is the hard part. Rand pulled his gaze away from her, and it fell on the body of a dark-haired girl, little more than a child. She lay sprawled on her back, eyes wide and fixed on the ceiling, blood blackening the bosom of her dress. I guess bosom. Sadly, he bent to brush the strands of hair from her face. Light. She's only a child. I was too late. Why didn't I do it sooner? A child. I will see that someone takes care of her, Rand. Moraine said gently. You cannot help her now. His hand shook so hard on Kalandor that he could barely hold on. With this, I can do anything. His voice was harsh in his own ears. Anything. Rand, Moraine said urgently. He would not listen. 
The power was in him. Kalandor blazed, and he was the power. He channeled, directing flows into the child's body, searching, trying, fumbling. She lurched to her feet, arms and legs unnaturally rigid and jerky. Rand, you cannot do this. Not this. Breathe. She has to breathe. The girl's chest rose and fell. Hooked. Has to beat. Blood already thick and dark oozed from the wound in her chest. Live. Live, burn you. I didn't mean to be too late. Her eyes stared at him, filmed, lifeless. Tears trickled unheeded down his cheeks. She has to live. Heal her, Moraine. I don't know how. Heal her. Death cannot be healed, Rand. You are not the creator. Staring into those dead eyes, Rand slowly withdrew the flows. The body fell stiffly. The body. He threw back his head and howled, as wild as any trollic. Braided fire sizzled into the walls and ceiling as he lashed out in frustration and pain. Whew! It's a tough one to get through. So, I mean, I shouldn't have to explain why that's a tough one to get through. Um, and we don't get a whole lot of these incidences in the entirety of the series. Um, it's probably better for our hearts, so because we probably can't handle that much. Um, there are a couple dark moments that are in reference of like women and children and like obvious references, but this is like a blatant, almost practically uh, necromancy in the puppeteering or whatever in this case. But it's one of those things where, and I've probably mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again because I do that. Um, I'm a big proponent of, in books, movies, TV shows, of not because I enjoy it, but because it creates a reaction out of the viewer, the reader, or the listener, whatever it is. Um, I, I'm a proponent of showing the things that are a bit more difficult to show in a series, like a children's death. Not necessarily, I mean, in some situations you could show the death of the child in real time, so to speak, whether it be getting stabbed or something like that, like something drastic. Because, not because I want to see that, because I really don't, but because then it lets you get kind of an emotional reaction that lets you understand the villains and how evil they truly are. Because if you think about it, do you think any of the Forsaken, any single one of them, would even blink at the concept of a whole like nursery of children being slaughtered by Trollocs or Merdral or a Merdral taking them to do whatever the light forsaken things they would probably do with them do you think that they would even blink an eye no they wouldn't because they're evil they've given up the light they've given up good they've embraced pure evil because they want to have power they want to rule the world so you're you're getting a picture of this is what a normal person would have to expect like look we passed Servants in, in the hallway, ladies, lords, soldiers, everything under the sun that were is in this giant fortress. Lots of things have been cut down. But we get to this one encounter with a child. And it just kind of breaks you a little bit. It's it's one of those things where like if this if you were put able to put yourself in Rand's shoes and you were like or I guess his boots uh, but like if you were in his in his shoes so to speak and you came across this what would you be thinking like imagine the emotions you'd feel I mean imagine if you were living in a village somewhere and Trollocs raided you up in the borderlands and you saw your your spouse and your children laying in pools of blood, possibly missing body parts, or, you know, you stumbled at like an uh, attempt to rescue your family, 
you stumbled across them in a crook pot, a trollic crook pot. Like, what would you think? What would you feel? How, what would go through your mind? Like, that's just powerful stuff. It's not something that we want to see. It's not like, yeah, gruesome stuff. Great. Yeah, I love seeing this type of stuff. No, it's nothing to do with that. Everything to do with the emotional response you will get. And as somebody who writes or creates a type of uh, content, whether it be TV, movies, books, games, whatever it might be, it's not something that you should want to see, but having it be there to show how evil somebody is or how brutal it is. And being like, I mean, if I put, if, it was, if I was in the shoes, I probably would have gone completely and utterly berserk. Because um, if I remember correctly, the ability he used is basically called Strike of Death. And uh, he basically finds creatures of a, same a similar type and just blasts them all to pieces. Um, but imagine doing that where, like, you, I'd probably throw all my plans to the wind and just go on a murder spree up in the Borderlands or something towards the, the Trollocs that are raiding or... Going possibly even to Shale Gold. Now, granted, that's probably what the Dark One wants. It's probably what the Forsaken want. That's probably a really dumb idea. But the emotional response, you wouldn't be able to think clearly. Rand was clearly not thinking clearly. Because he's trying to do something he doesn't have the power to do. He's not the creator, as Moraine says. So, I find this to be fascinating, heartbreaking, and all the things at the same time. But I do think that there's not enough of this type of writing... Well, I mean, there's probably a lot of writing because there's no like visual appearance, but you never see this in movies. You never see this in TV shows. You never see this in any rendition of video games or animation or whatever. Like you don't see this kind of thing. You don't see the crazy stuff you see. Like if you go to like The Witcher 3 or something, you can see corpses with flesh on them hanging from trees like you, the head's a totally different color, whether it be red, purple, blue, whatever. It they're, they're swinging from, like, the trader's trees or whatever. Like, you see that, and you don't really think too much about it because you're like, oh, they're adults. It's, it is what it is. But imagine if you saw children up there. You'd lose your flipping mind. And rightly so, because that's messed up. Like, you'd be like, who did this? You'd find out who it was. You'd probably go down and try to hunt them down and kill them because that's just pure evil and pure wickedness, and you need to stop the villain. So in this sense, you're seeing this and you're like, this is just a taste of what the Dark the dark One's going to basically do with his Trollocs, his Shadow Spawn, including Murdral, Jakar, Greyman, whatever it might be. Like, I doubt they'd use the Solus for that kind of thing. But like, if, if there was like a girl, like if Elaine was younger, like 12 years old or something, they might use a Greyman for her to get through all the guards and stuff to get to her. But, I mean, they're not going to use that on just regular nobodies, even if they're children or whatever. Like, why? They're, they're, they're used for high-priority targets they have to actually assassinate. Kids typically are not. But if you have a Trollic come by and just lop a kid's head off, that should be devastating because that's not something we want to see. That's not something we want. But it does get that emotional rise, and it does create that hatred for a, uh, an enemy. Um, typically in the evil villain. And it, it also shows that the villain is in fact evil, unredeemable, and all those fun little words we like to use to explain true villains, not the Disneyfied ones where they're like, oh, I'm bad, but I'm just misunderstood. No, no, no. It's like full on, full stop. They're evil. They need to be eliminated. And that's the kind of thing that this type of a thing, and I know I'm going a little long about this, but it's because this is such a powerful thing where like, I get choked up when I read it and I'm trying to like hold it together because I have a kid and I'm picturing this being my kid. And I'm just like, somebody would not be living the night. Like they just, no, there's no shot. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to handle myself because of that, because that is not right. It's something unnatural. It's something against the way nature was intended to be. That's why it has that powerful emotion. We we think, like, when you see men and women getting killed and everyone's more offended that the women get killed than the men because, again, men are not as valued in that regard 
in societies and of all of human history. But like we live in a society where people are extremely offended if you see a woman get killed or if you see kids get killed, but nobody blinks two eyes if it's a guy because it's what you it's it's desensitization against it. And I'm not saying like, oh, you need to be or whatever. I'm just saying like, if you if you have a problem with people putting this kind of stuff in their books or in their media, something think why are you okay with men dying? Why is it okay if they're an adult? Why is it okay if X, Y, or Z? Like, it should bother you in every situation, but we just don't have we're not, I guess, developed in society to care that much about adults because it's expected of adults to give their lives to protect those of others. Now, in this situation, it doesn't look like any protecting was going on. It's just an absolute slaughter, and it bothers everyone when that kind of thing happens, especially to children. So, in that regard, kind of close it out because I, I need to move on to the last part to end the chapter. But uh, to get the point across, it's not something I'm endorsing as like, yeah, this is great. This is fantastic. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this does bring out the emotional reaction and you, the reader, the viewer, the listener, whatever you are when you consume the kind of medium that this is be participating in. In some situations, it is kind of funny. Like, there are mods for video games like Fallout 4 where you can put, like, 100 kids against a single death claw, And it's just funny because the kids aren't acting like kids. They don't... They're, they're un, kids are unkillable in the game normally. But then you have to, like, mod out that unkillableness. And then they're just, like, a bunch of NPCs just sitting there like, Ow, hey, stop it. Ow, hey. Like, it, it's funny because it's silly. It's goofy. It's not real. It's, it's obviously not real. It's just... A silly little test. Somebody's like, "How many? How many kids would it take to, to beat a death claw?" And the death claw just destroys all of them. But it's like they're digital, but they're not. They're not getting butchered. They're just like falling over and then disappearing because they're digital pixels or something. Like it's just a humorous concept because it's not real and you know it's not real. But if they added things where there were actual like blood and gore the kids had actual real life reactions and stuff. And it wasn't just silly because they're not programmed to, to interact that way. So they're, it's like a, a, a clown telling a joke as he's getting hit by a, uh, get stabbed in the chest by a sword. It's like, Oh, that, that, that kind of stings a little bit. Like it just, it, it's not natural. So it doesn't bother you as much, but if, it, if they were real like kids that you'd been talking to throughout the story and they were, had real stories and they had real personalities and stuff, like in Skyrim, you can go adopt a kid or whatever, I think. I don't remember if it's through a mod. I think you can through mods, but I think you can also do it if you just have a house or whatever. So like you can get married. You can have a, a kid through adoption or something. Imagine having that kid in the game for 80-plus hours of gameplay, and then in-game it's like years and years and years, and you have them, and then all of a sudden, you know, an, an enemy, whatever, whether it be natural animal or actual villain, kills that character you totally would react differently because there's something more to it and in this situation there's something more to it it's not just words on a page like you can you can feel how that would happen and affect you in real life so i'll close it there for that part because i i've probably made my point in terms of getting it across what i'm trying to say whether or not you agree or disagree, that's that's fine. I I just think that we we don't treat villains like villains anymore. We we give them a pretty easy leeway where we almost glorify them like the Joker or something. Where we're like, oh, he's a really cool villain. And like, eh, is he though? Is he though? I mean, he's he's cool in how he's created in his like never-ending war with Batman, but he's not cool in the way that like he abuses he abuses uh, Harley Quinn abuses other people around him kills murders people destroys them potentially rapes them like those are all serious things that like it's not really that cool to be the joker if you think about it like but we don't always see it or think of it that way because old school comics with old school joker weren't as adult like as they are modernized now in the movies and stuff um they're not as dark as the current modern stuff. But I just think we need to think, rethink how we see or believe villains behave and stuff, because it's a very powerful tool that not many creators use in their content. So you can get more of an emotional response where somebody's just, you're on board with that villain being put down. That's, that's basically what I'm saying. Anyway, 
Um, but after this heartbreaking fiasco, um, he sags to the ground and releases Sidene and shoves it away as much as he can, but it's like pushing a boulder, pushing away life, and just strength falls out of him with the power, and all he feels is the slime and the stain of the taint weighing him down in the darkness, and he had to ground Calendar on the floor tiles and lean on it to stay on his feet. And he's like, trying to speak, but it's very difficult to. And he's like, are the others, like Elaine, Perrin, the rest, was I too late for them as well? Moraine's just really, really calm from a distance, uh, saying like, no, you you are not too late. But Lan looked ready to dart between her and Ran. And he's like, you must not. And Ran's like, are they still alive? And she's like, yes, yes, they are. And he's like, okay, okay, nodding his head, relieved. But he tries not to look at the girl's body. And three days waiting, so he could enjoy a few stolen kisses. And if he had moved three days ago, well, he had learned things in those three days, things that he might be able to use if he could put them together. If. Not too late for his friends, at least. Not too late for them. But in the back of the mind, you know it's going to be gnawing at him about the girl, where if he had moved, that girl would still be alive. Potentially any other children that were caught in this as well. And he's like, how did the trucks get in? I don't think they climbed the walls like the Aiel, not with the sun still up. Well, is it still up? Anyway, how did the Trollocs get here? Balan responds. It's like, eight large grain barges tied up at the Stone's dock late this afternoon. Apparently, nobody thought that they should question why laden grain barges would be coming downriver. And his voice was heavy with contempt. Or why they'd dock at the Stone. Or why the crews left the hatches shut until nearly sunfall. Also, a train of wagons arrived about two hours ago now, 30 of them, supposedly bringing some lord or others things from the country from his return to the stone. When the canvas was thrown back, they were packed with half-men and Trollocs, too. They came in in any other way. I don't know of it yet. And Rand's like, okay. And as he does, his knees buckle and lands there to pull his arm over his shoulder to hold him up. And Moraine takes his face in her hands and... He feels the chill of healing through him, the, not the full blasting cold of healing, a full healing, but enough to pull the weariness out of him, most of it. But there's a seed left, and as if he had worked a day hoeing to back, which he should be familiar with, obviously, because he did that for the last several years, at least. And he moved away from the support he didn't need anymore, and Land watches him warily, see if he could stand alone, or maybe because he wasn't sure how dangerous he actually was, or if he was insane or not. Moraine's like, I left some on purpose because you need to sleep tonight. And he's like, oh, so much to do, but I need sleep. He nods. He doesn't want her shadowing him, but he's like, Lanfear was here, but this was not her doing. She said so, and I believe her. You don't seem surprised, Moraine. And he's not, he's not sure if Lanfear's offer would surprise her, or if anything would. Lanfear was here, and I talked with her, and she didn't try to kill me, and I didn't try to kill her, and you're not surprised. I'm like, oh, to be fair, you can't say you didn't try to kill her, because you did kind of fling her against the wall. So, I mean, that technically could have killed her. If she smacked her head against the wall or something, it could have busted open like a melon. So, yeah, did you, though? You might have been able to. And she's just like, I don't think you could kill her. At least not yet. But then she looks at Kalendor and flicker of her dark eyes. At least not unaided. I doubt she'll try to kill you yet. We don't know much about any of the Forsaken, but least of all Lanfear, but we do know that she loved Luce there in Telamon. Now, to be fair, I don't believe it was considered love. It was definitely considered infatuation and uh, stalking. <laughs> love is a strong word for that kind of behavior. Um, it's like, well, to say you're safe from her is definitely strong, but there's a good deal she can do to harm you short of murder, but I don't think she'll try to kill you as long as she thinks she can win loose there and back. And then it kind of like slowly hits him. He's like, Lanfear wants him, the daughter of the night, used by mothers who only half believed in her to frighten children. Well, she frightens him. And almost enough to make him laugh. He'd always felt guilty for looking at any woman besides Egwene, and Egwene did not want him. But the daughter heir of Andor wanted to kiss him, at least, and one of the Forsaken claimed to love him. Nearly enough for laughter, but not quite. Lanfear seemed jealous of Elaine. That pale-haired milksop she had called her. Madness. Now, I'd like to point out, 
this is a little bit of fun uh, trivia that if you remember the prologue when Luce Theron, before Luce Theron, you know, creates Dragon Mountain and everything, um, the pale-haired milksop is not Elaine. It's Ilyana, Luce Theron's wife. And you know this from a couple things, because she had mentioned you loved me before you loved that uh, pale-haired milksop. It's the conversation with Lanfear. That's what she says to him. And to be fair, he doesn't necessarily love Elaine. He doesn't necessarily love Egwene. He doesn't necessarily love anyone because love is a strong word. Now, he might feel attraction. He might feel like there's a connection or something like that. But again, love's a strong word. But that pale-haired milksop, if you go back to the Age of Legends when uh, basically Luce Theron was still alive, before he became Luce Theron Kinslayer, um, him and Mirren, a.k.a. Lanfear, were a thing for a little bit. But then she loved power so much that he kind of said, I'm not doing this anymore. And he leaves, and eventually he meets Ilyana. And Ilyana is a pale-haired milksop, according to Lanfear. So... Um, that's what he, that's what she's referencing and he's thinking, but he doesn't know about Ilyana, obviously, because he's not truly loose there in Telamon, despite being the dragon. <laughs> but he thinks that she's referring to Elaine when it's obviously not Elaine, because Elaine might have some kind of goldish hair as kind of like a paled haired milksop. And Ilyana was golden haired as well. But Elaine kind of has like a strawberry blonde where she's like a little bit of red, a little bit of blonde mixed together. I'd like to say, depending on the lighting, that's what's going to tell you the most of what it's like. He's like, tomorrow. As he starts moving away from them, and she's like, what? Tomorrow? He's like, yep, tomorrow I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. At least some of it. And he's like, the thought of Moraine's face if he told her everything made him want to laugh. And he's like, well, if he knew everything himself, he's not sure. But Lanfear had given him almost the last piece without knowing it. One more step. The hand holding Kalendor by his right side trembled. Without he could do anything. He's like, I'm not mad yet. Not mad enough for that. Tomorrow, good night to us all, the light willing. And tomorrow he would begin to unleash another kind of lightning. Another lightning that might save him or kill him. But he's not mad yet. And that is the end of the chapter. Now, it probably would have ended like 15 minutes earlier if I hadn't gone on that rant, so I do apologize if you didn't like hearing that little section. Um, I just, I'm really passionate about being invested in characters and situations, villains, heroes, anti-heroes, whatever it might be. Um, and I think this was masterfully written, in my opinion. Um, there might be some words here or there that I would probably change, like instead of uh, serpent-like, I would probably use serpentine, but that's just me, and it's probably a lot more boring if you think about it, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but I think how it was written and just ripping your heart out of your chest in the scene with the little girl was just, it was a big thing. I'm not going to bring it back up because it's going to pull me right back into it, <laughs> but you get the point. Um, so hopefully that didn't bother you too much. Um, if it's not your cup of tea, I, I don't put it against you. I don't hold it against you. Um, it's not everybody's thing, and it's obviously not a pleasant experience, but that's just, in my opinion, the reason a lot of movies, shows, and games aren't something you can really relate to. Um, there are some that you can, but they're, they're too few in number to really make a big difference. But anyway... Um, let me know what you guys thought. Um, we learned a bit about Trollocs, Murdral, um, Rand and his entourage as they run through the, uh, the Stone of Tear as it's being ransacked, <laughs> more or less. Um, him, his ability to use the one power against Landfear or his ability to use the power afterwards, um, all that kind of stuff. I don't think it's ever really described as how it killed Mergerall and Trollocs indiscriminately without hitting anything else. I, I don't know. Strike of Death is not something that's a lot of detail in the series to explain it. So, 
If anybody knows, I'd love to hear your explanations. So you can reach out to me through X or Twitter, um, which is at Tales of Red Arm. And you can also reach out on uh, Facebook, which is just Tales of Red Arm. Or if you can't access either of those or don't want to or whatever, you can access uh, my email, which is just talesofredarm at gmail.com. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys. I'd like to hear your theories. I'd like to hear whatever you guys have to say, even, you know, yelling at me for talking for 15 minutes about, you know, your idea of me claiming that kids should be killed or something. I mean, <laughs> whatever, whatever it might be, um, despite the contrary, but, um, I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys thoughts are and everything. Um, hate mail is typically just as fun as the, the not hate mail. <laughs> I just don't read the hate mail on here. So, um, but yeah, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Um, we got chapter 11. We're about one sixth of the way through. Actually, we're further along than one sixth of the way through, um, this book so far. So we're, we're making pretty good time, but we're going to be, uh, jumping to a, uh, different perspective coming up in the next chapter. Um, it's a little bit longer, I think, than this previous chapter, but I don't know how much of it's, you know, the good stuff as opposed to just endless amounts of descriptions. But um, it'll be a little bit different. So chapter 11 is going to come up next. So I hope you guys will join me again for that. So hopefully we'll see you then. So until next time, until then. We drink all night and dance all day, and on the girls we'll spend our pay. And when we're done, then we'll awake to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and struggle the girls be they short or tall. And follow young Matt wherever he goes to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and struggle the girls be they short or tall. Then follow Lord Matt. Wherever he calls to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll give a yell with a bloody curse and hug the maids, it could be worse. Let's ride away with the dark woods first to dance with Jack of the Shadows. Yeah. 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 Yeah.